0: lovely to see you all. It really is. Last week we weren't here. We were at another church and I cannot tell you how much I missed you all. A lot. And then we came back to a bit of a, a bit of a thing. And because I hadn't been with you guys in the morning, I didn't handle it as well as I would have been handling it sort of had I had your company. So I think that just reminded me how much I need you all. This morning, I'm going to do a bit of a poll because I've got two, two uh, slots, preaching slots, relatively close together. I'm going to do a mini-series. So you're getting part two. So a couple of weeks ago, I shared from the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And we looked at servant leadership and the importance of putting our roots down deep into God's grace. Because unless we put down deep roots, we can't grow good fruits. So this week, I'm going to do a quick recap um, and then focus on the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is is one of the tangible proofs that God's at work in our lives, that we are growing in our relationship with him, that we're becoming more like him. So last time I spoke, we talked about church leadership not being a tree that we climb or a ladder or servicing church not being a, a hierarchical thing. So if John puts up the first slide... So we talked about the fact that um, if you're serving really one in, well in one area of the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to move to another area of service. But it's not climbing a ladder. If your gift, gift is hospitality and it's, you're being blessed by God in that gifting, that's the most fruitful that you can be because you're right in the block hole of God's will for your life. There's no hierarchy in the church There's just one body where each person plays a part. On slide two, we looked at how personal growth works in church. It's a a journey. It's discipleship, study, prayer, worship, reading the word, serving one another. All these activities cause us to put down roots, digging deeper into God's grace. So we discussed briefly how those good roots produce good fruits. On slide three, we looked at what these roots support, what our personal journey in God supports, and it supports the fruit, the Holy Spirit. So using the tree analogy, people might not necessarily see our discipleship journeys, our study, the times in prayer, the times when we serve quietly, but they do see the fruit we produce. Reading from Galatians 5, from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You see, Christians live by the Spirit. When we give our lives to God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, he produces a crop of these good fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the one I need the most of, self-control. See, these fruits demonstrate aspects of God's character. And they're signs that as we grow, we're growing more like our Heavenly Father. So the more we demonstrate these attributes, the more like our Heavenly Father we're becoming, and that's a growth. Can you put up the next slide? About the the, the, yeah, the, the one with just the fruit on, John. The slide with just the fruit on the tree. Yeah, because I realized that when I put this, this graphic up last time, you couldn't really read the fruit, so... See, one of the paradoxes of faith is that even though our salvation is perfect, absolutely at the point where we accept Christ, it's still a work in progress. A paradox is just a thing that makes no sense, and there are lots of them in life. Because our journey, our faith, our salvation has to be worked out in everyday life. When a baby's born, it's got all it needs to develop. Its genetic coding's already decided whether it's going to have blue eyes or brown eyes. But without food and drink, shelter and nurture, a baby won't be able to reach its potential adulthood. If we wish to grow in faith, we must be nourished and sheltered. must be taught to walk and talk. But there's a very fundamental need that all humans share, the need to be loved and to love. And I'm not talking about romantic love here, but family love. Talking about parents and children, brothers and sisters extended family. We all need love. All babies need love to grow. Take love away and they, a, a child doesn't grow fully, doesn't grow into all it can be. Of course, family love is not always perfect. I remember one Sunday morning when my son would be probably about four or five. We were in church and I looked down at the lad's feet for some reason and I realized that his shoes were really tight, and I thought, I'm a terrible parent. I'm allowing my son to wear shoes that are far too tight. So I bent down to examine the situation, realized that he got six or seven pairs of socks on, <laughs> which might be why his shoes were too tight. So then when I started stripping pairs of socks off him, I, decided, I realized that he decided that the best place to store his lifetime collection of blue tack was in every layer of these six pairs of socks. Simultaneously ruining the whole lot. So we had a few words that were less than loving. And this was Mother's Day, which just added to the general picture. So, so we got home, he's remembered now. So we got home, and I'm like grumping away in the kitchen, making Mother's Day dinner, thinking, i have got to make dinner. And Ian came in, looking all cute with a card that said to Mum, and I got a picture of some flowers on. So he presented it to me. I thought, oh, that's it's all right. It's lovely. That's lovely. It makes up for it all. I opened it up, and he said, I hate you, Mum. Love, Ian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is just like, that's us, isn't it? We're just like, we're all over the place. Yeah, I threw his blue tack away, that's why he hated me. He wasn't the socks, he wasn't attached to the socks, just the blue tack. <laughs> but he just made me think that, you know, this, this family thing is so important because actually the church is just an extended family. We're the family of God. In order for the church to, to thrive, it has to be a safe place where love abounds, where it's okay to love each other. It's okay to occasionally throw your teddy out the car as well. And um, if you're a child, actually, that's not uncommon. I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I love you. Because these things are just, they don't understand what hate is. They're a child. They're just saying something. So the church is an extended family where love is the most important thing. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. These verses are often used at weddings. Which is funny because they're not really about romantic love. They're about familial love. The, the word for love that they use is, is agape, which means brotherly love. But actually, it's not that surprising because unless you have all these qualities in a marriage as well as rom- romantic love, you're just going to fight. So, 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels that have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of love. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And that's God's model for us as a church, to have that kind of love in this body, in this local expression of God's extended family. A love that doesn't dishonor others, that isn't self-seeking, that doesn't keep a, a stock of all the wrongs. Because because Ian's my son, within about two seconds of him giving me a card that said, I hate you, love, Ian, I was perfectly all right with him because he's my son, because we have a relationship. Now when I tell that story, it's just because I find it incredibly funny, not because I'm cross that he told me he hated me on Mother's Day, but because it's really funny. See, love is at the heart of all we are and all we do. The love we've received from God inspires our love for God and for each other. When we love someone, we want the best for them. We protect those we love. We build each other up, not tear each other's down. And there's a funny thing that goes on because the love that we share as a local family in the church is the love that we share with our local communities, with the people in work, with the people that we meet, with our own families. You see, that love is really attractive to people. When we demonstrate God's love with each other, that attracts people from outside. When we do urban impact, and we go out and do some gardening, and muck about a bit, it's the love that we demonstrate between each other that is the real appeal to people. When we have community barbecues, it's the love that we share, not the food, that impacts lives. Jesus gave this instruction in the Gospel of John from 13, 34. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus says to his disciples, the thing that's going to let them know that you are my disciples is love. Not miracles. They're a demonstration of God's power, but the the thing that marks us out as disciples of God is the love that we carry. That's amazing, isn't it? Love is the most effective form of evangelism. I could use up all the time I've got this morning, just looking at this one fruit, the Holy Spirit, love, because the Bible's bursting with references to love, God's love, how we should love each other, how that love flows out from the church, but we're going to move on to joy. Joy is not just happiness. It's deeper than that. One of the dictionary definitions I found for joy was really interesting. It said, joy is something or someone that provides a source of happiness. In Hebrews, the Bible tells us, chapter 13, I'm not going to read all of it, but it tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And the joy that was set before Jesus was us. It was the people who were going to die and save. That was the joy set before us. Joy is something or someone that provides a source of happiness. And when Jesus laid down his life for us because of the joy set before him, he became the joy set before us. Yeah. Our joy is in Jesus, not our circumstances. Because our joy is in Jesus, not the things happening to us, We can experience that joy in a deep, personal way, and we can know that joy even in the middle of of times of pain and grief and separation and loss and trouble and anguish. We can still know that peace because that peace before us is Jesus, and Jesus is constant. Jesus isn't overwhelmed by storms. He's constant whatever our circumstances are. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sent out his disciples to go before him and perform miracles. And it says that they returned full of joy. They were just absolutely full of it. Jesus, even the demons flee in your name. They just came back full of joy. Jesus sent them out, and what they came back with was joy. But Luke ten seventeen uh, and verse twenty, I'm going to split these two verses. It says the seventy two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And in verse 20, Jesus says, However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, Jesus is reminding his disciples that the joy isn't the things we do. It's who we are in him. It's that relationship that we have in him. That's where the joy is. The joy is our salvation. It's that our names are written in the book of life. It's not what we do, even when we act in the power of the Holy Spirit and amazing things happen. That's not the source of our joy. The source of our joy is salvation. Next in the list, peace. So interestingly, reading that bit about Jesus sending out the 72, I I was looking for that to demonstrate joy. But actually, I found something really interesting because if we go back some verses when Jesus is first sending out the 72, to go before him and preach the gospel. Luke 10, verse 5, it says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. So Jesus is speaking about the peace that we carry as people of faith, not just being a peace that lives in us, but an attribute that can be transferred to other people. Isn't that interesting? You see, peace is a gift from God. And again, like joy, it's not dependent on our circumstances, but on God's faithfulness. But it's transferable. We carry that peace, and that peace flows out into other people. Um. As Jesus in the Gospel of John is preparing, Paul's touched on, on, on this, I'm going to come to some verses later that will just make you think we colluded, but we seriously didn't. As Jesus is getting ready to lay down his life for us and leave his disciples, he prepares them for that temporary separation that's going to happen. In John 14:27, he says, "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give. "'I do not give to you as the world gives. "'Don't let your hearts be troubled, "'and do not be afraid.'" You see, the longer that you know Jesus, the more you'll look back on life and realize that in all the storms and all the hard bits, the peace of God was there. So even when it feels really rough, there's this inner peace available to us. For the sake of time, I'm going to now do a bit of a group. I'm going to put patience, kindness, and goodness into a parcel of characteristics that for this morning, I'm going to say, things Joe needs more of, is the title of this, (laughs) Actually, most of us do, but we'll call it things G- Jo needs more of. You see, these characteristics are vital in our interactions with each other. In the church, in ev- with each other in the church and in every other area of our lives. So a few weeks ago in the sixth service, Sue talked about spending time with a, a food bank client. And she spent time with her, she was kind to her, she talked to her, she was patient because it took a long time. And then that lady came back later and told Sue that she'd been planning to collect the food parcel, go home, cook a last meal, and commit suicide. But that act of kindness and patience and goodness from Sue brought that lady into a place where she could choose to live. So actually, we often don't know the impact that we're having on those around us. We just don't know. But... Goodness, kindness and patience will always impact people. They can't not. I think the easiest way to underline this is, is to actually consider what the opposite that is. And we know how damaging the opposite is. We, we're English, so we're rubbish with words. So we think goodness is a bit, hmm, good, mm, mm. wants to be good, I don't want to be good. But the opposite of goodness is badness. The opposite of kindness is unkindness. And if you've got no patience, you're impatient. Those three things, people who are bad, unkind, and impatient, aren't the kind of people we want to know or be. So don't underestimate your everyday interactions with people. Don't underestimate the impact of, of goodness, kindness, and patience. It's like when we say nice when we're English. We think nice is, nice because our society tends to value success and strength over kindness <coughs> our society might but the kingdom of god doesn't that's not how we are to be as christians you see i'm feeling quite challenged about these characteristics at the moment so i'm going to tell you a situation that's gone in the cafe for a couple of years and i'm going to just pick a random name we'll call we'll call this person I, can't, I, I want to call her something that none of you are called, like Agatha, but I'll forget halfway through and use her real name. So I'm going to call her Jane, because I've decided so. So a couple of years ago, I came across this lady called Jane, who presented with a load of needs. So we gave her something to eat and drink, and I ended up taking her to a couple of different services in town to try and get her some help. Because It was my day off, so I, could just, I wasn't just abandoning the cafe. So I'm walking around with her, and all the time she's saying to me, oh, nobody will help me, look, nobody's helping me, nobody's helping you. And after about 20 minutes of this, when I should have been doing something else, I stopped her, I said, look, Sarah, sorry. (laughs) Jane, look, I told you I'd I'd mess up on this one. It's all right, you don't know her anyway, so it don't matter. Everybody who knows the cafe is just laughing now. Where am I doing? What am I doing if I'm not trying to help you? Oh, yeah, but nobody will help me. I'm trying to help you. I'm here. I'm stood with you. We're walking up this street. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to represent you in this meeting. I'm helping you. Nobody's helping me. Nobody will help me. So I took it for about 20 minutes. I said, you know what? You're not being helped. So I walked away. A bit later, she rolled up. And she'd discharged herself from hospital in the middle of winter with no shoes. So she was wearing plastic bags on her feet. So I went to the... um, Street pastor's store and borrowed some flip flops and admitted to, to the guy who runs it that I'd nicked his flip flops and gave her some flip flops. And then when I'd finished work, I walked into town with her. I took her to a shoe store where she fleeced me for like the best boots she could find. Ding, ding, back to your corners. So she turns up again. Nobody's helping me, really. So yeah, nobody's helping me, so I'm going to go and move to another town now. But I need to phone my social worker. Can I just phone my social worker? Go on, you can use the office. Phone call for one phone call. She only made an arrangement to meet a drug dealer on our church phone right in front of me. Cross didn't come into it. I exploded. Ding, ding. Back to your corner. Six months later, she rocks up again wanting help. And she came in again. And she came in uh, in a rainy day, absolutely soaked to the skin with some big bags. So me being me, as I went to serve her a drink, I kicked the bags and realized they were bags full of carrier bags. She walked in like this with No waiting in my hall, bags full of bags. I ended up banning her from the cafe. It's the only time I've ever banned anybody from a church thing. But I had to ban her from the cafe. And it was none of those other things that caused me to do it. It was because she was mocking one of our adult volunteers, one of our special needs volunteers, and I just couldn't tolerate that. So, how do I reconcile having to say to somebody, no, you're not welcome here anymore, with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, back to the sending out of the 72? When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. We offered a peace. We offered her a place to be. We offered her some solutions, but she wouldn't take them. It goes on to say, Jesus sometimes says some remarkably harsh things. It goes on to say that if you enter a village and you're not received, leave it and shake the dust off your feet. With Sarah, we've left it and shake the dust off our feet. And currently, she's not in a good place. So how do I reconcile that? Because the truth is that we can't just keep being doormats forever. Jesus didn't ask us to do that. And I think the thing is, I believe that she still has the chance to change. But every opportunity she's had to receive God's peace, she's rejected it. So for now, we move on. Because if you remember, it says that love always protects in Corinthians. And that's a model of who we are. And we have a duty to protect this family, as well. So, actually, sometimes, sometimes we have to go with that duty to protect each other. And she was not a safe person to have in that environment, so we protected ourselves. I tell that story because sometimes we beat ourselves up when we can't be perfect which in my case means I beat myself up all the time. Uh, anyway, whatever. Land speed record on beating, you know, not, not this. But actually, God just asks us to present the possibility of somebody receiving his love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. We can't force-feed them. I pray for her that she'll turn around and come back to a place where she can be dealt with. So we've got faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control left. These fruits also deal with our relationships with one another but there are also active choices which affect our behavior. Self-control is obviously a choice, clues in the name, self-control. The verses that talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit sit within a, a chapter that's talking about the freedom from law that comes with grace in God. Talking about freedom in the Holy Spirit, but... The passage warns us of the dangers of gratifying the desires of the flesh. Grace isn't license. Yes, we're under grace, not law, but grace isn't license. Grace doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. Actually, love honors. Yeah. We should live in a way that honors God. And that's what we call to do, to try and live in a way that honors God. Faithfulness and gentleness are fruits which reflect God's heart towards us. When we fall down, God gently sets us back on our feet. He's faithful even when we're not. When we experience difficulties in our relationships inside and outside of church, we can choose gentleness over harshness and faithfulness over unfaithfulness. When we ask, God gives us the grace to do that. So in a situation where you find it hard to be gentle or faithful, ask God and he'll give you the way. God gives us the grace to reflect his character even through our own weaknesses. promise I didn't write this down after Paul shared these verses, but I'm going to share some, wor- some, some words of Jesus from John 15. We're going we're to mix a metaphor, because so far we've been talking about trees, and now we're going to mix a metaphor into vines. John 15:1, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken in you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you... Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. There again, fruit shows that you're his disciples. The fruit we produce, that's the thing that people see. I woke up this morning with an analogy that popped into my head out of nowhere. I woke up, I was thinking about, I tried a new craft the other day, and basically, I took some of this, which is fluff, this is wool, that's been processed and dyed. But you can't make anything with it as it is at the moment. You've either got to be brilliant, like my my mate Ruth, and sprint it into yarn with which you can make garments, or there's another process. And I tried this process called felting. So I took all these individual strands of fleece and I laid them down on some bubble wrap. And I built a picture up with them. And it was just fleece piled up in a picture. And then what you do is you use water and soap and heat and friction and you roll this, this load of collection, this jumble of separate bits of pointless fluff. Sorry, Ruth, it's never pointless fluff, is it? You roll it, and as you roll it, and that heat and water and soap and friction happens, then what you make is a piece of felt. Solid picture. That's produced by water and friction. Now, we think that friction is a bad thing, but friction is a good thing. Because if there was no friction, you couldn't walk. If you were on ice and there was no friction, you couldn't walk. Fingerprints on the skin on the base of your feet isn't called, technically isn't called that, it's called friction-ridged skin. Friction-ridged skin. The reason it's called that is because if you don't have it and you pick up a glass, it'll go and smash. It helps us pick things up. You see, back to the vine. Our fruitfulness doesn't depend on our own efforts. It's because we're connected to the vine. But all the branches are connected to the same vine, so we're all connected to each other. So actually, as individual bits of fluff... We need to be in proximity with people. We need to be. We join together. That it's like the waters, like a picture of the Holy Spirit soaking all of it, and drawing it together. The friction is us working together and working it out, talking to each other, working through things, being in connection with our brothers and sisters. I wasn't in connection with you last week. I was somewhere else. Been challenged theologically. But actually, that friction, that rubbing together, that working together, that act of service. By the time you would made that piece of felt, that had been rolled 600 times. It's not an instant process. I didn't think it was going to work for the first 200 rolls. But I persisted. And that rubbing along together, that... Talking to each other, that being with each other, that working, that service, that being connected through the Holy Spirit in and through all of us, that produces something that's a whole. It's just another way to look at one body, many parts. I don't know if that helped anybody to understand that, but this morning when I thought about it, it made sense. So, Can you put up the slide of the whole tree, John, the one with the roots and everything? Can we have the band back, please? Lots of verses that we've read this morning talk about the fruit that we bear being the sign that we're Jesus' disciples. So, good roots grow good fruits. There are two, we, we, fruit doesn't spontaneously generate, the tree needs the roots. So, like we talked about last time, we need to be on that discipleship journey, that digging down, that putting our roots down into God's grace. But that also has to do something. Just having great roots and no fruit, that doesn't demonstrate to the world that we're Jesus' disciples. So I'm just going to pray and hand over back to the guy, to the worship team, that God would do his thing in us. Lord, we want to thank you that you are good, that you love us so completely. Lord, I want to thank you that You've demonstrated your love so that we can understand the kind of love we need to have amongst us. Lord, we pray that this week, as we rub up against life circumstances and each other and challenges, you'll be forming us into that beautiful picture, that reflection of who you are. Because we'll, we'll bear your likeness. We'll, we'll, we'll be growing your fruit. So Father, I just pray for everyone here that, that knows you, that you just grow them. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you'd be at work in them, that you'd make them hungry to know you, to understand what that love of God experienced in their life feels like. So Lord, we just give it all to you and we thank you that you're the God who supplies all that we need. Amen.